Hey, folks, welcome to the Dark Horse podcast live stream number 208, which is a special edition, not on our usual day. I am Dr. Brett Weinstein. You are Dr. Heather Hying. And this is Tesla, our this darkest is, cat. This is this is the darkest cat we got. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he just he just sucks in the photons. Yep, he does. And the eggs. Yes, and the both never of them, met a cat as much of a fan of scrambled eggs as this one. He loves he loves the scrambled eggs. Loves the scrambled eggs. All right, today we're going to talk about uh, a variety of things. I don't even know how to summarize it, so maybe I should not try to. I think actually, given the temperature, we should winterize it. Winterize and, it. Yes. Man, it is cold here. I've noticed. <laughs> oh All boy, right. as have unfortunately our pipes. Yes, as have our pipes. But you know, we persevere. We it, go uh, on. It, Luckily, it, it live streaming us... doesn't require water. I mean, it requires some water, but well, yeah, you know, we we figure out the uh, the fragility in our system, and we uh, we get better over time. We get anti fragile. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully. Okay, so um, we're here on Saturday, um, talking to you. We, we won't be doing a Q and A today, and we won't be back until not next Wednesday, but the following Wednesday. Uh, so this is this is standing in for our normal uh, Wednesday live stream. Um, but we encourage you to join us at the watch party that's happening right now at locals. And, uh, there's lots of great stuff that happens at locals. When we do do, uh, Q and A's after these, they will be on locals only. We did one this last Wednesday. It was, it was great. Uh, very successful. Uh, we do some AMAs, um, mostly with Brett, um, Zach and I did an AMA at locals. We release our guest episodes early at locals. And um, and our Discord server is available at Locals. And I did want to say one thing um, about that. We want to mention that the Dark Horse Discord community, which has been going strong um, basically since we uh, made it available in um, as COVID started and as we started doing these live streams in the spring of 2020, um, that our Discord community is grieving a loss this week. Brian Williams, whom we did not know, um, has been active in that Discord community since Unity 2020, actually. Wow. Um, and he died this week far too soon. Um, and I've been told that there's been an open voice chat um, going on for more than 24 hours, celebrating him and commemorating him, and that Sunday's karaoke, which um, is a regular feature at the Discord community, um, will be held in his name. So I did not know about this. Wow, that's sad. It is. It is. Um, so... Um, we are going to save everything else that we would normally talk about um, uh, until after the main part of the episode, uh, but for our sponsors. We, as usual, have three sponsors, three ads that we do right at the top of the show. We do not read ads. We do not accept uh, companies as sponsors unless we truly vouch for their products or services. And this week we have not one, not two, but three sponsors that are brand new to us, and we're excited about all of them. So. Without further ado, here we go. They are Momentous, Maui, Nui, Venison, and Freespoke. And uh, the descriptions and offers are already in the video description if you're, if you're interested as we're reading these. So Momentous. You want to live a long and prosperous life, but longevity isn't everything. It's more important to consider the number of years that you're healthy with no chronic or, or debilitating disease. That's called your health span. And right now in the United States, the average gap between lifespan and health span is 10 years. Think about that. People tend to live their last decade burdened by disease with a poor quality of life. One thing you can do to increase your health span is to recognize what you're deficient in and remedy that. 
Our soils are poor and most of our diets are too. Plus, many of us live at high enough latitudes that we simply can't generate vitamin D for some months every year. For all of those reasons, high-quality supplements can help increase your health span. To that end, we want to introduce you to our first sponsor this week. It's Momentus. Momentus makes vitamin D, which we have been taking, we have begun taking every day from late fall through early spring, when the sun isn't high enough above the horizon at high latitudes in the northern, well, in either hemisphere, since I just said fall through spring, to generate vitamin D. So supplementation is valuable. Momentus also have zinc and turmeric and a magnesium threonate that I'm particularly fond of. Many of us are low in magnesium, and I find that if I take the magnesium from Momentus a few hours before bedtime, my sleep is particularly deep and restful. Momentus also makes an excellent collagen protein, which is made with grass-fed collagen peptides. You can dissolve it in liquids like smoothies or coffee or just plain water. Collagen protein helps with mental focus and also muscle and went, went, joint wellness and recovery. Momentus is an excellent source for high-quality, science-backed, rigorously tested supplements of all sorts. So, if you want to take supplements that are the best available to improve your health span, go to livemomentous.com and use code Dar- That's where Tessa's going right now. He's going to the web. He's going to type in livemomentous.com and use code DARKHORSE for 15% um, off all their best-in-class products. I'm betting he misspells it. He probably will. Yeah, he's not a good speller. No. No, he takes after you that way. Wow. That's L-I-V-E-M-O. See, if he had waited, I would have spelled it for him. That's L-I-V-E-M-O-M-E-N-T-O-U-S dot com with code DARKHORSE for 15% off. All right. Our second sponsor this week is Maui Nui Venison. That's Maui as in the Hawaiian island, Nui N-U-I Venison. Maui Nui Venison is a mission-based food company bringing the healthiest red meat on the planet directly to your door. We absolutely love this meat and its mission. Not the mission of the meat so much, but the mission of the company. It is seriously delicious, not gamey at all, and easy to cook. Everything about this company is amazing and also unusual. The meat that they sell is extraordinary in both taste and nutritional value, and it is both environmentally and socially responsible, like actually so. They're not just talking a talk, and they're not trying to satisfy ESG uh, claims or anything. Responding to the problem of Maui's invasive Axis deer population, Maui Nui Venison is helping to restore balance to vulnerable ecosystems and communities in Hawaii by harvesting a limited number of deer. They are seeking to restore balance to Hawaii, not eradicate or farm these animals. They are limited. Maui Nui Venison is limited in how many animals they can harvest, but more impressive than that, they do so in a stress-free way. Wild harvesting fully wild meat in a complete unique way, using forward-looking infrared technology to give them what is basically eyes in the dark. They hunt exclusively at night, always with a USDA official in attendance, with such precision that only the animals targeted are impacted by the hunt. Plus, Maui Nui Venison has donated over 16,000 pounds of meat to Hawaiian communities that have food insecurity, amounting to over 43,000 meals distributed. Research out of Utah State shows that the meat from Maui Nui Venison is the most nutrient-dense and protein-dense red meat available. This is nutrition mm, This is nutrition of place. The deer live on volcanic-rich soils, which support remarkable plant diversity, and the deer engage in truly wild grazing, all of which give Maui Nui Venison the highest protein per calorie, up to 53% more than grass-fed beef. We hi- and, and, and we got a shipment from them um, that was full of everything from jerky sticks to bone broth to fresh cuts and all of it. All of it is exquisite. We highly recommend trying their all-natural venison jerky sticks for an optimal protein snack, or their amazing bone broth, or any of their wide variety of fresh cuts, all available in their online butcher shop. Maui Nui Venison delivers the healthiest red meat on the planet directly to your door. Go to MauiNuiVenison.com slash darkhorse to get 20% off your first order of fresh venison, jerky, delicious bone broth, or even their special Ohana box subscriptions, which, like the deer they harvest, are limited in number. 
That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I-V-E-N-I-S-O-N.com slash Dark Horse to get 20% off your first order. Do it today. You will not regret it. I should just add, we had a tremendously good conversation with one of their founders and pushed them around a little bit to see whether this really was um, the environmentally responsible, high-quality food. Um, yeah, we knew that, it tasted good, but we wanted to know if all the other stories were true. Yes, yeah. and uh, I was amazed at the quality of the answers. This really is the real deal. Now, yeah. the stuff is not cheap compared to the uh, high production stuff that you're buying at the supermarket. But when you realize all of the corners that have been cut and all of the consequences, some of them about your health that fall follow from the, that corner cutting, you realize that this is actually extremely high quality food at a good price for the food. Exactly. Nutrient dense, high protein, and utterly delicious. Yep. Utterly delicious. Absolutely. For good reason, because your body can taste that it's good for you. That's right. All right, our final sponsor is Freespoke. Now, you may be asking yourself, what is Freespoke? It is not a bicycle part welfare program. No, sir. It is a search engine. And it is a search engine that is targeted to solving some of the very important problems that we face. Now, long-time viewers of Dark Horse know that we have talked about the Cartesian crisis, which derives from the fact that we must take almost all of the information that we have at our disposal on faith from some authority who is often not especially trustworthy. It puts us in a position of either becoming uh, overly credulous and believing things that are nonsense or becoming overly or becoming cynical and not believing things that we really need to believe. So what are you going to do? Well, I know that one of the things that I do is I often look at multiple different sources that lean different ways to the extent that all the sources that we have available to us are biased looking at multiple sources so that you can correct for the bias of one by looking at the bias of the other is a pretty good solution. So that is what Freespoke is about. Freespoke is a search engine that attempts to balance out the viewpoints so that you can look at the news and figure out what actually happened and you can get search uh, results that are not based on echo chambers. Freespoke's vision is based on several values. Privacy, giving you anonymous search, that's big. Um, all viewpoints is better than echo chambers. And small businesses are the foundation of our economies. And you're going to love it because every search on Freespoke is anonymous unless you opt in to personalization. News is delivered from across the spectrum and media bias is labeled. And their shopping search makes it easier to find American-made and veteran-owned brands. So check out Freespoke from your desktop or in an app store and download it today to make it your default search engine. You can also look at their about page at freespoke, F-R-E-E-S-P-O-K-E dot com slash about and be sure to use the code DARKHORSE for whatever you want, whenever you want. You don't need it here because this There's is absolutely free. No code DARKHORSE for Freespoke. <laughs> well, you still have, you can use the code, you know, you could speak it exactly into your first search or something like that. It's, it's, it's still a useful code, even if it doesn't save you anything on this excellent free product. Yeah. Um, so before we launch into what we're, what we're going to be talking about today, let me say that um, when we've, when we started doing ads uh, in, boy, what was it, like April of 2021, something like that, a good year after we started doing these live streams, um, we had been resistant to taking ads. Uh, and in fact, the first episode in which we ran any paid ads, uh, we dedicated entirely to sort of an analysis of why we're, why we're concerned about ads in general. 
Uh, and um, it's been a very, very interesting run. We work with a fantastic ad broker who is utterly sympathetic to our position and understands that, um, you know, in our case, most of the opportunities it brings to us, we're going to say no to. And um, I don't know. I don't. I think it's been almost almost since then that we've had an episode with three due sponsors at once. And um, I'm just super thrilled about all of them. Yeah. So, um, again, Freespoke, a new kind of uh, search engine, uh, momentous for excellent, high-quality supplements of all sorts, and Maui Nui Venison for the most nutrient-dense, protein-rich, uh, wild, actually wild and humanely harvested uh, venison on the planet. It's Invasive deer brought to Hawaii by King Kamehameha the fifth. I think that is yeah. right. Yes, yes. Yeah, there's so much in that story that like just didn't did fit into an ad read. We'd have to do a whole episode on it. But um, yeah, invasive deer that are taking over, and they're not trying to eradicate them. They're trying to get them down to a limit that uh, that is then sustainable, and they will only hunt to that limit. And it's it's all extraordinary. Yep. All right. Uh, do you want to talk about Goliath first, or do you want to talk right. about? Yeah, let's 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 talk let's about just, Goliath. Get this over with. So, unfortunately, we are still uh, enmeshed in the same saga that we talked about last time. I will say, I am personally in a different place. It was very unpleasant to face some of the pushback and feel like I needed to respond to all of it, which is the way it feels if you've ever been uh, demonized online. You just you see all of the things that are being said about you that aren't true, and you feel like responding to all of them. I am now, I feel like uh, I have moved into the next level of understanding what is going on, and I, of course, feel much better about it because um, this is, frankly, uh, about some very important stuff, and the fact that it's happening is indicative of well, the thing that triggered it, when we talked about it last time, um, the thing that had triggered it was my interview on Tucker Carlson, which reached something like six million people in three days and made a couple of um, important points. One, it, it uh, explored the topic of the WHO Pandemic Preparedness Treaty, and it pointed out the danger of the mRNA um, so-called vaccines deployed against COVID. And so anyway... Much pushback came, uh, but some of it came from a quadrant which I wasn't expecting, which was the dissident uh, movement, who many of whom reacted very badly to my having said that the um, Goliath had made a terrible error by taking all of the competent people and demonizing them and shoving them out of the institutions, and that in so doing, he had created uh, a kind of a dream team. Um, Many people felt excluded by that statement, and I couldn't figure out why. What I'm realizing now is that there, we have talked about a strategy that we are vulnerable to with respect to Goliath and whatever it is that Goliath wants. And that strategy follows from the fact that Goliath, whatever it is composed of, has all of the intelligence agencies at its disposal, and those intelligence agencies have something like all of our communication, right? They have all of our text messages, our emails, our phone calls. And what that means is that if you wanted to put together a map of, let's say, a dissident community, and you wanted to figure out where the tensions were, 
where the blind spots were, where the resentments were, who the people were who were capable of being corrupted based on some sort of an incentive. If you just wanted to map all of that out and then you wanted to destroy the dissident community or neutralize it, you would have a very um, effective mechanism for doing so. You could simply seed things into the online world that would cause people to pop off and go after each other, which is exactly what we are seeing. And what I... Actually, Zach, will you show that uh, tweet that uh, Holly put up? I think she put this up the day after uh, that Tucker interview came out. Um, anyway, what she has put together is a... And can you zoom in on the... Uh, so she's put together a graphic in which she claims that all of the people pictured are the new establishment narrative gatekeepers. And it contains everybody from Tucker Carlson and Alex Jones and Russell Brand and Tim Poole and me and Douglas Murray and Megyn Kelly and Zuby and John Campbell and uh, Robert Malone, and then in a separate category, she's got the cross-promotion and she's got you know, X and Rumble and Daily Wire and Rebel News, The Blaze, Info Wars. She's got uh, uh, Bobby Kennedy Jr., Vivek, um, and uh, Elon, Elon Musk, Musk as uh, somehow involved. And then over in Investors, Musk again. Looks like Peter Thiel, Donald Trump. I'm not sure who the fourth person is. I don't recognize him. Um, but in any case... This is somebody, I don't know Polly, um, I take her to be a real person, she at least does videos, I'm sure she's not a completely phony individual, my guess is she's uh, a real um, a human being, but she has gotten herself in the situation where she is now calling all sorts of people, um, controlled opposition, limited hangout, saying that this is what the establishment wants. And she's doing this in the immediate aftermath of what I take to be a major setback for the establishment. The establishment was trying to get the World Health Organization to draft new rules that would give it absolute authoritarian control over the populations of most of the countries of the world in the event of a future emergency, which they've so vaguely defined that it could be anything, including global warming. Right? Why, if the establishment, why, if, if I'm on that list and I go on Tucker Carlson's program and Tucker's on that list and I out that plan to a larger audience than had seen it before, that seems like a setback for Goliath. And yet the idea is, oh, well, that's how it's supposed to look. You would say that because you're, you're part of the new establishment and this is supposed to look like you're a dissident fighting Goliath, but in fact you are Goliath. And it's like, well, Okay. First of all, even if you if you just suggest this as a paradigm, right? Everything that looks like it's a valid uh, challenge to Goliath is in fact Goliath uh, misdirecting you into something. Then how do you even do battle, right? So so my point is, if you were to imagine that one of the things that Goliath was going to do was it was going to play the resentments and the suspicions of people within the dissident group, of course, there will be 
suspicions and resentments and all of that. If you were going to play them and get that group to destroy itself, wouldn't it look exactly like this? Yeah, I think it would. Um, and it reminds me of something else that we lived through, actually. Uh, I hadn't seen that tweet before. I hadn't seen that that specific approach. That seems quite explicit at some level. Uh, and of course, there are alternate explanations possible. But um, remember Evergreen? The college? Yeah. I do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's funny. My blood pressure goes up. <laughs> net. Um, yeah, so there was this new president uh, who was hired uh, to replace the outgoing president who was actually beyond competent, you know, not beloved by everyone because he didn't do everything that everyone wanted. But Les Purse had been a very, very qualified president who left the college stronger than uh, it was when he started. And then George Bridges came in. And I'm trying to remember, was it? 2015 that he came in 2016 I, don't, I think it I don't has remember. to have been 2015 yeah i think so too <clears throat> um so it's going to have been fall of 2015 and one of the very first things that he did uh was he said now now guys 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 <laughs> <laughs> our younger son used to do that when we were when we were little when he was little <laughs> well all right yeah. little digression so <laughs> when you have very little kids right you sort of exaggerate if you're, if you're going to get in the car to <laughs> go to dinner right you need to get everybody excited about the thing and so we would do the guys 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 thing and toby picked that up without the follow-up of the announcement that he had gathered everybody for he just realized that he's guys guys <laughs> yeah so anyway I, I george bridges was never as cute as toby i'm sure no. of that uh but george bridges the new the then new and now gone um president of Evergreen in the fall of 2015 said, guys, guys, I've got a friend, uh, Stan, if I remember correctly. Mm -hmm. And I think he'd been a geology professor at UW or yep. maybe still was at University of Washington. And, um, and the story was, uh, was, okay, we of course can't talk to all the faculty, but I'm going to have Stan come around and talk to select faculty and just figure out like what your aspirations are for the college, what you dream of for this school that I've just been hired to be at. And it's amazing. And just such a, you know, such a clearly glorious place. And I'd love to know what more you think it can be. And of course, just that setup means that if you get the call, okay, you know, can you spare an hour, um, you know, to spend sitting down with Stan, he'll come to you, he'll come to your office and uh, and, you know, chat with you in your office. Um, of course, it was the very rare, if not the non-existent faculty who would say, I don't have time for this, right? Um, so Stan came and talked to you and he talked to me and he talked to, well, it turned out we later heard pretty much everyone, right? So it wasn't actually a selective group, but you were made to feel like it was selective because that was part of how they guaranteed that you would talk. And then in the conversations, it became a little bit clear. And then once we started comparing notes about all the conversations that we're having, or, you know, some of us started comparing notes about what had been said and what Stan had asked in these conversations, what he was really doing was, was digging for dirt on relationships within faculty and between faculty and staff. And I'm not talking about like romantic liaisons. I'm talking about where were the allies? Where were the enmities? Where were the problems and the historical feuds and the unresolved irritations? And he effectively mapped us. Like 
the new president came in and brought his guy, who was this you know esteemed academic from the premier research institution in the state, and had him sit down with us in just kind of a, like a buddy-buddy a way, and he mapped our tensions. And this then allowed the new president to use that map of the social tensions on the Evergreen faculty and staff to, to divide and conquer. And, and he went and he went and befriended the activist faculty and promised them goodies. And anytime anyone would appear to stray, he promised them more goodies. And, you know, he offered you a bunch of goodies and you kept saying no, much to his you know surprise. And, yeah, um, and he asked me what I wanted. Distress, yeah, he asked you what you wanted. And at that point I was on a sabbatical, so he didn't have an opportunity to ask me what I wanted. So, um, but yeah, he, this is what he did. He, he, he used someone to map our social tensions and, um, and that map. I don't know if what ended up happening at Evergreen would have been possible without that map. Well, I, I agree entirely with the parallel. This is like a mini Goliath, right? Yeah. Evergreen was a microcosm of all of it. It was a microcosm of the academic insanity, the uh, intersectional nonsense, right? It was a microcosm of all of that. And then it became a microcosm of Goliath's divide and conquer strategy where you had a faculty which was unusually strong right? Administrations usually have a lot of control over faculty, but at Evergreen that wasn't true. And so dividing the faculty was necessary in order to transform the college. So by strong, you mean that the faculty had power to affect administrative decisions and the direction of the college in a way that at most colleges and universities, while it may seem to outsiders like the faculty are driving things, and it may even feel to some faculty like, of course, they must be driving things. In fact, faculty have almost no power in most places. Right. Especially, um, Evergreen, they did. especially junior faculty who are uh, forced to comply with everything until they've gotten tenure that was not true at evergreen and so so bridges needed a plan to divide us against each other mm -hmm. in order to be able to override what would otherwise have been an too often a reflexive veto by faculty who didn't trust administrators because they mm -hmm. saw it as a mirror of the uh management versus labor dynamic right right that which was, it never had been Right. It never had been. And mm -hmm. so that was a blind spot of the faculty. But look, I want to tell on myself here because I see a mirror beyond just simply what Bridges pulled on us. Mm. I didn't like Bridges from the very moment I laid eyes on him. Mm -hmm. I really did not trust the guy. There was something about him that yeah, from during the hiring process. From I during the hiring process, mm -hmm. I really did not want to see this guy ascend, and I can't remember there was some couldn't be avoided mm -hmm. when he arrived and he announced that his friend Stan was going to interview us. I thought, well, okay, here's this guy that I really don't trust, but he is not doing the thing that I would fear he was going to do, which is come in and start changing stuff based on his vision of the college. He is at least listening to us first, and he wants to hear what it is that's really going on here, which would be important because teaching at Evergreen, if you did it right, wasn't like teaching anywhere else. Mm -hmm. So my sense was my guard went down as I watched somebody behave in a way that I thought was laudable, and I felt like, okay, it is incumbent on me to give this guy the benefit of the doubt. And I did sit down with Stan and I told him what I thought because I thought if this guy's going to play, if he's going to be a good president, mm -hmm. then I'm going to, I'm going to uh, give, give him, him good information, good, give him good information, mm -hmm. which turns out to have been a major mistake. And the reason that I say that I'm telling on myself is that I see, and I'm not sure what the alternative to this is, 
I don't know that I made an error there. Obviously, in retrospect, given that the guy was a maniac, yeah. um, I wish I hadn't given him any information. Right. But I mean, I, I just want to specify, like, neither you nor I um, talked about other faculty. Right. In those in those conversations. Um, but we know what the questions were and we know that other like that he was constantly asking us to. OK, but what you know, what about this problem over here? You know, in my, in my case, he was specifically focused on like what's going on at the museum. You know, you're a curator. There's other curators. And like there, there were tensions, serious tensions. But like, why are you so focused on that? Like that was the, there were these bells. But well, but, you know. Everything constitutes. Uh, a weaponizable piece of information in yeah. this context, even just knowing what a good classroom looked like and why it worked, right? What yep. the relationship with the deans was, all of that stuff mm -hmm. armed him. And it also, I think, got you and me selected as targets because it became obvious in this context that, you know, we could stare down pretty much any challenge to us because we had classes overflowing with students who almost all ended up happy at the end of that process and so there wasn't you know in a in a in a cash strapped situation that gave us a lot of leeway to just simply say no that isn't true it's not how it works here so mm -hmm. anyway but the larger point is this i did have suspicions about george they were right I extended him the benefit of the doubt at the point that he indicated something mm -hmm. that I thought was a positive sign, and that turned me into a sucker. Now, the problem is the alternative to being a sucker in that case is to be a cynic right. and to have it be impossible for somebody to demonstrate that they actually are on the right side. Yep. And so would I prefer to be a cynic who, you know, yes, was right about George the whole time, but um, would have been wrong about anybody trying to do the job correctly? No. Which error do you prefer to make? Right. And in this case, the point is, what is the presumption, right? There's a lot of stuff about COVID where obviously mm -hmm. this was phony baloney from the beginning. And I'm not saying that COVID was phony baloney, but the response to it was not well intended. We now know that because effectively everything that might have been useful was shut down and everything that wasn't useful was promoted. And that can't be an accident. That pattern is um, too broad and go ahead. Well, let me just say, I mean, we've, we started saying at some point, I don't remember exactly when, like literally do the opposite of what they're telling you to do and you will be better off. Even like a static rule is almost never the right thing to do. But if you just listen to what they say and you do the opposite, you will do better than, than acting randomly. Certainly that was not our position at first, right? Right. Our position at first, we, we, we assumed at first um, that what was coming in um, was reflected everyone's good faith attempt to make sense of a chaotic and emerging situation. And that was certainly what we were doing. Um, and it did not seem at that point uh, that everything was wrong, because as we talked about on the last episode, you know, we were in favor of masks at first and very limited lockdowns. Um, but very quickly, they started to make errors that seemed so grossly negligent was the was my interpretation at the time, not my interpretation now, with regard to, you know, not letting people go outside and putting caution tape on playgrounds and using bulldozers to fill in skate parks and chasing people down beaches to tell them to get back inside with sick people or, you know, whatever. Like, very, very clearly it became, it became, very, very early it became clear but it wasn't clear from the beginning. Like we did not approach it with a everything they say is wrong because if you approach anything 
with a everything X says is wrong, you are going to miss, you're going to miss things. And this is, this is a point that we have made many, many times, but you know, to be completely cynical is just as rife with error as it is to be completely faithful in such a situation. There are still those who, if it comes down the pike from CNN or MSNBC, they say, okay, God, God's honest truth. And there are still those who say, if it comes from them, it must be wrong. Now, I'm closer to that second position now, but it's still a matter of assessment. And so skepticism involves assessment, whereas cynicism and faith say, I'm going to set up a static rule and I'm just going to follow that no matter what. And that's that's the error. It's the error. And the only reason that cynicism worked in this case was that for whatever reason, the thing on the other side was committed to a program of doing the inverse of what was right for the public. Yeah. And so anyway, yes, that did end up being a better rubric. Right. And um, we would have been better off if we had all treated these people with that cynicism. But the problem is you have to decide what your orientation to a new emerging situation is. Is your presumption going to be that, you know, the experts are telling you something real? You know, maybe that should no longer be our expectation. We've seen mm -hmm. expert class, the expert class um, has invalidated their own expertise by doubling down on nonsense over the course of multiple years. Mm -hmm. But was that the correct orientation at the beginning? Um, my feeling is we were suckers because these people were worse than we had imagined. We leveled up quickly and well, and that that's what you should do. Now, my feeling is I don't, I'm not, I recognize that the cynics were right in this case, right? They they get a claim on that rightness. Mm -hmm. People who leveled up, I have no problem with. And we have all leveled up to different places. There's real disagreement over what actually happened and what it means. And that's healthy, mm -hmm. right? That's what you want, is you want that discussion to have people who are willing to, uh, to outline each of the positions and do so forcefully so that we can figure out which ones are the most robust. That's all to the good. Demonizing each other, however, is insane. And what I came to understand in looking at all of this pushback and thinking carefully about it and certainly thinking about uh, Goliath and what it might want is that there is this shocking mirror. It's, almost, it's, it's really like a mirror. It's the exact same thing on a different topic. It, this is DEI, mm -hmm. right? You have a large number of people who yeah. are motivated by resentment for in their minds, not being included. And I'm not saying they were or they weren't. As it was with DEI, you and I said from the beginning, is there lots of unequal opportunity that actually would be good to remedy? Absolutely. There are lots of people who are excluded from uh, scientific fields, let's say, because of the zip code that they were born in, which mm -hmm. put the getting into some field that they might be very good at that much farther away. And it had nothing to do with their personal characteristics. It has to do with the misfortune of a history of oppression, right? And in the same way, it may be that there are lots of people in the dissident community who uh, paid a price and didn't uh, find themselves rescued by public attention for reasons of bad luck or reasons of uh, the deafness of some of us. I don't know. But nonetheless, a argument for the redistribution of attention. Here is a bunch of people whose faces you know, don't listen to them, right? They're the establishment. They're the old white men, right? You want to listen to these other people who are the true blue dissidents, okay? 
That sounds a lot like uh, DEI. And what's more, it is very focused, right? So they've been going after me over uh, my early support of masks. And to be honest with you, I'm not exactly sure, you know, I certainly thought masks might stand a chance of being helpful. And I certainly thought uh, for adults that they were uh, not a huge concession. Uh, as for mandates, that's a different question. But mm -hmm. nonetheless, even though I have many times publicly said my stance on masks was wrong, I have acknowledged that and other people had it right, they are not interested in the fact that I have corrected the error. Their point is, we're not satisfied until you deliver an apology, huh. which sounds exactly yeah. like this mob mentality. And let me just be clear about this. Correcting my errors is my responsibility in this case. Here is why apology is a completely inappropriate thing to demand. Some of you will remember I've discussed the first lesson I ever gave as a professor, the first assignment, which was to write on the question of why an apology works. It's just people saying stuff, vibrating air molecules. Why, if you've been injured by somebody, does them saying, I'm sorry I injured you, have any material meaning at all? It doesn't uninjure you, does it? Well, yeah, it does in, in a couple of different ways. One, if somebody harms you um, and they acknowledge it, then A, they are making it much harder for them to make that same mistake later because they are making eye contact with it. B, and more importantly, they are giving you effectively an IOU. You were damaged by something I did, and therefore I am in your debt. My apology is a debt. Now here's the point. I have corrected my error. I have made eye contact with what I did wrong. Does it make it impossible I will do it wrong again? Nope. But it does make it more likely because I have consciously been through it a hundred times. Do I owe you an apology because I've injured you? No. Because if you look at the sum total of what you and I did over the course of COVID, at the same time where we were too credulous on the question of whether or not masks might function, we were shouting at the top of our lungs about the fact that it made no sense to be keeping people out of outdoor environments or masking them outdoors. That never made any sense to us. You and I built a model of um, the effective volume of a space as it related to the transmissibility of COVID, which meant that you could actually adjust your behavior. If you were getting into a car the danger to you was much greater. If you were in a large auditorium, the danger was much less. If you open the windows in the car, the danger goes down. So the point is, if you take all of the things that we talked about, if we take our assessment of the safety of the so-called vaccines, if you take our analysis of uh, what kinds of behaviors might make you safer, being outside, getting sun exposure, supplementing with vitamin D, etc. If you take the net of all of the stuff we did, you ended up way better off. And so in demanding an apology, it is like saying, imagine that some army was fighting a great battle against some terrible enemy, and it won the war, but it lost some battles. Does that army owe you an apology for the battles it lost? No. The net effect of that army was positive on you. There were things, maybe those battles were lost because of errors that were made. Still, apology is the wrong thing to be demanding. So... 
my point is the net effect of the divisions inside the dissident community will be to embolden and empower Goliath. No question about it. Are there some limited hangouts and controlled opposition in the dissident community? I'd be shocked if there weren't. It would be a crazy error for Goliath not to have seeded that community with a certain amount of that stuff. But let's be clear. We don't know who those people are and, you know, peeking into every statement or claim and imagining that you can see this stuff. You can't. You might see it as a result of a pattern of things. But... Well, I mean, to the degree that the that the complaints here are honest and organic and real. I think it does also reveal this position that many of us feel that we're in, which is this just this this crazy making moment, which has now gone on for years, which forces you to question just about every relationship you have. How did they come into my life? How long have I known them? What have they said? What have they known that surprised me? What haven't they known that surprised me? What are the chances that they are who they say they are? This is no way to live. This is absolutely no way to live a life. It's exhausting and it makes you paranoid and it makes you seem like a crazy person. So are, you know, are other people also finding themselves having to do this? Yes, no doubt, of course. And will absolutely honest and honorable actors in, you know, in this landscape uh, find themselves questioned? Yes, obviously. And, you know, and, and you are being, and I have been, and, you know, and, and there are, there are many others um, who, who have been and will be um, who don't actually deserve that. But you, you, know, you have to, you, you have to look skeptically at the entire landscape in order to have some chance of discovering who those people who are actually acting as controlled opposition and such might be. Um, that said, it's pointed, not only I can say for sure that I know that you're not that. And this is actually, so I, I recorded a, a podcast yesterday and he, and he asked, the very last question Sean Newman asked me was, um, what, to what do you attribute the length of your relationship, our relationship, uh-huh. our ability to do what we appear to do and have been doing for decades um presuming that as all people um as all two people have we have conflicts we have arguments uh we get emotional we feel betrayed when we're not we feel betrayed when we are like all of these things are true and one of the things that i said was for you know since evergreen basically but since before that actually um we have had to question so many people whom we thought we knew who turned out to not be who we thought. And then we welcomed in so many new people into our world, most of whom have turned out to be extraordinary, but you can't ever know if they're new, right? Like you, you, if, if you don't have the history, there is no replacement for having the history with someone. And that no matter what, no matter you know how difficult a time you and I be, may be having personally, which is not that common, but of course it happens, we know that we are who we say we are. We are true. You are true. I am true. And we are true to one another. But I'm not talking about loyalty here. I'm talking about we've known each other since we were young. We met at 16. Yep. Right? So there is just no and and so, you know, that that is part of why that is part of why these these movements like Black Lives Matter are so dangerous when they say we're gonna try to tear apart the nuclear family. Like who else am I utterly sure of? My children. Right? Our children. Yeah, they they may end up 
you know, believing things that we don't understand, that we wish they didn't. They may end up doing things that we wish they didn't, but we know who they are and we know who they have been from the beginning. And even though I haven't known you since birth, I know, I know you. And I know that these accusations are, you know, to the extent that they are good faith, they are wrong. And to the extent that they are themselves part of Goliath or controlled opposition or whatever, well, then we can see you or we can at least interpret that that is one possibility of what is happening here. Yeah, I mean, uh, I would say you have to be open to the possibility. I don't even mind the question. Right. Mm-hmm. If somebody right. says, hey, how do I know you're not controlled opposition? I'm perfectly comfortable having that discussion with them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I will lean heavily on if I were controlled opposition, um, how does that map onto what you can establish yourself? Origin story as far as being in the public eye, what, you know, what I have stood for and how you think that fits with what uh, Goliath would want me to be doing. Right. So we, you know, we can narrow it down and I'm I'm um, comfortable with the idea that I can be 100% certain. I can't be certain that I'm not being steered by some force that feeds me things that cause me to act in ways that are in violation of my values. That Mm -hmm. could be. Um, But I'm not a willing participant on Goliath's team, right? I don't get a paycheck from Goliath, and I take myself to be Goliath's enemy. So Mm -hmm. anyway, but you, you know, I know that. You don't know that. Um, but you can have an estimate about the likelihood that that's true. And my guess is for most people, especially if you know me in person, but even if you've just spent a lot of time watching Dark Horse or, you know, interviews with other people, it's pretty unlikely that Goliath would come up with me as a fake human. Um, But here's the thing. You mentioned the experience of uh, people disappointing us and other people... um, shining in crisis. And I realized over the last few days that that was happening again. I hate it, right? Mm-hmm. The crisis does this. Sure. I, I've called it the painful upgrade where um, people you thought you could rely on, you can't. Mm-hmm. And then people show up out of nowhere that um, surprise you. And the net effect of this is very positive, but the pain of discovering that somebody you thought you could trust isn't trustworthy is uh, quite severe. Yeah. And I would just say that, you know, this is happening right now on both fronts, right? We are seeing people who absolutely should know better. I, you know, I, it, it's tempting to point a few of them out, um, but my guess is you know who you are, right? There are a bunch of people who, you know, th- there are disagreements that we have inside of the dissident community, Um you know, there are people who believe there was no pathogen. I know what evidence they're looking at. I don't agree with them. But the point is, that's not a, we can either, you know, either COVID was uh, made to look much more dangerous than it was, or we're talking about some other pathogen, or there was no pathogen. I'm open to that possibility. But in any case, people um, have turned these disagreements into fundamental critiques about uh, the quality of one's character. And they've started using litmus tests. And this, again, is exactly what Goliath would want. Whether or not Goliath is behind it, I can't say for sure. But my guess is 
given Goliath's history disrupting organizations from uh, the civil rights movement, the Black Panthers, um, the environmental movement, uh, Occupy Wall Street, the Tea Party, all of these things. There's a history of getting movements to turn on themselves, and of course it would be doing that now. So we should be expecting it. Now, on the positive side, I wanted to highlight... Actually, there, uh, there's one negative and one positive. Um, the positive side, somebody alerted me to a piece that Scott Adams did in a... Uh, in, I think, yesterday's Coffee with Scott Adams. And I haven't checked in with Scott Adams in a long time. We had some disagreements um, during COVID about what was going on. And then at some point... He said something uh, which I, I still quite disagree with. He said something uh, um, in the context of a battle over race relations that basically one side was cheating and he advised uh, white people to get away from dark-skinned people. Um, now, I know what he meant, and the reason I disagreed with him about that was that I feel like we have an obligation to take care of those um, who, you know, dark-skinned people who aren't playing DEI are in need of our allegiance. And so, anyway, I didn't think it was simple. But Scott did a uh, segment in his recent um, Coffee with Scott Adams that he covered the pushback on the Tucker Carlson uh, discussion that I had. And he also covers, uh, he covers the mask question and he talks about it from a um, risk management perspective. Anyway, I was impressed with the quality of what he said, not just that he was supportive, which is of course nice, but, um, but the quality of his analysis and his willingness to push back on his own audience, actually, some of which was reflexive in their um, dismissal of this. Yeah, he. I will just say I haven't listened to <clears throat> to all of it, and he does say, "Okay, now I'm going to spend some time critiquing Brett." Um, and so he's, you know, he's he's very forthright and honest. But um, he says, "You need more Brett," and he salutes your ability to explain complicated things and your bravery and your dedication to following the data where it, where it takes you. Um, and that's that. You know, I I of course agree. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I I get a lot of you, but I still yeah. I still think the world needs more. You don't Brett. need more Brett, but. <laughs> Other people um, might. Uh, yeah, and it, it was it was just it was truly heartening um, to see this 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 bit from him. Yeah, yeah. it was uh, it was good. Now I did want to clarify one thing. Um, I wasn't sure the little pushback that he gave was somebody challenged me online um, how they couldn't figure out how anybody educated as I was could possibly have thought that a mask would stop a virus given the relative size of the holes in the mask and the tininess of the virus and i responded i said riddle why would anybody think that um you could uh affect the spread of malaria with a window screen given the size of the holes in the window screen and the size of uh the plasmodium particle and some people didn't understand that i wasn't challenging the effectiveness of window screens relative to malaria <laughs> that I was pointing out that there's more going on. The fact that the malaria... The viruses aren't traveling through the air um, unattached to other things. Right. They're traveling through respiratory droplets. Right. And so in the case of malaria, it's traveling on an insect. In the case of uh, COVID, it's traveling on a water droplet, but it's not a simple matter of the size of the hole and the size of the 
of the pathogen. Um, and at first I thought that Scott had misunderstood what I said, but then he seemed to correct course. So anyway, if, he, if anybody was confused by this, what I was trying to say was, welcome to complex systems. Sometimes the size of A and the size of B isn't the story because there's some third party C that is relevant. From uh, non-pathogen land, we have a few colanders, and uh, one of them has pretty big holes, and yet it collects spaghetti just fine. Like, occasionally you'll get a, a piece of spaghetti that hits it just right yeah. and, and can go through. But in general, um, because of the shape of the, of the thing, even though its diameter may be smaller than the holes in the vessel, that doesn't mean that mostly it goes through. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. Rice, not so good. <laughs> yeah. Rice, you want to use a, a strainer rather yeah, than a colander. You yeah. do. Yeah. Um, but okay, so anyway, um, really appreciate it. Actually, I didn't, when somebody pointed me to the Scott Adams thing, I didn't pick up that it, uh, his discussion of me was very late in the coffee thing. So I listened to the whole thing, mm -hmm. which was actually really interesting. Um, Scott has a pretty... Uh, advanced perspective politically across the whole map. He covers multiple topics, and I thought it was well worth a listen. So we'll post it in the show notes. Yeah. So anyway, um, uh, appreciate appreciated the support and appreciated the nuance in what Scott had to say. On the opposite side of the spectrum, I was also pointed to um, David Pakman. Hmm. David Pakman, who reacted to the. Tucker interview and put up his own little video um, taking me to task and using this very unfortunate screenshot. But um, anyway, um, Pacman. Because it, of course he did. Of course he did. Well, I don't know where that screenshot came from. So it's sometimes YouTube picks stuff that's weird. But let's put that aside. David um, is, of course, scandalized by my having referenced Dennis Raincourt's work suggesting 17 million deaths so far from COVID vaccination. And uh, he goes through a bizarre, in my opinion, um, refutation of Raincourt's number. Raincourt uh, explores the question of excess deaths and the timing relative to uh, waves of COVID and uh, vaccination campaigns, and he shows uh, what I, I don't think it's conclusive, but I think it's uh, quite compelling evidence that the timing suggests that the excess deaths are not the result of COVID and are the result of uh, the vaccination campaign. Um, Pacman refutes this, and he acknowledges that he's playing with anecdotes here, but he goes through a rhetorical interchange with his audience who he can't hear answering, but point was, um, does anybody know anyone who had a serious vaccine injury? No, I don't think maybe one or two of you do, but almost nobody does. So he's just talking to himself? Yeah. Does anybody know that's, anybody? That's an anecdote. That's pretending to be anecdote. It, right. It's like a it's thought, pseudo anecdote. Pseudo thought anecdote. And I will say, uh, I saw your thing. I'm in your audience, I guess, David. I know lots of people who were hurt. Actually, you know some of them. You don't know others, and I'm not going to out them. But yeah, the number of people who I know who actually did have a serious adverse event, including Many one of whom are still hiding that fact because somehow being injured is now itself a crime. You know, it's a moral crime to have been injured by something the government told you to take. 
what's more, somebody uh, who was a friend of mine got an injury, and I interviewed him about it, and that's on Dark Horse. So this is somebody, I didn't pick him because he was injured. He and I uh, knew each other before he was injured. He believed the shots were a good idea, got one, was severely injured. Um, I then got him to a doctor who knew how to treat his injury, and he's much better. But nonetheless, the number of people in our circle who do have a serious injury and the number of famous people... Well, I mean, so the, the thing that will come back there is because we are people who have been talking about the lack of uh, safety and efficacy of these vaccines, of course, we will collect such stories. And you know, that, that is also true, but we know people, many people whom we knew before COVID ever existed um, who have been vaccine injured. That's right. right. People who we knew, and that really is That's the it. measure. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. You can't, you can't use the other because it could just be an, uh, an attractor, but, um, but no, the number of people that we know, we knew beforehand who have a serious injury is substantial. And if you don't, David, my guess is, and I, I've said this before, you need to ask the question in such a way that people will give you the answer. If you go around demonizing people who talk about vaccine injuries and then you say, by the way, anybody got one? Yeah, no kidding. Those people won't be in your audience at a very high level and they won't be in your social circles. And if they are in your social circles, they're going to be quiet about it because Mm -hmm. you're asking them to out themselves as the enemy. Um, And I think the thing that is very difficult to talk about... um, well, to, to get appreciation for is how many people we know and how many other people we know who in turn know many people who are vaccine injured and are not out, even many in many other cases to their families, to their employers, to their friends who are skeptical that anyone is getting injured. So again, it's this it's considered a moral failing, you know, just as it used to be, just as, you know, being a woman in Victorian era in Victorian times was a moral failing of some sort, right? It is considered a moral failing by people like David Pakman um, to have been vaccine injured. That is diabolical. But what that does do is it changes the behavior of those people who have been vaccine injured, not all of them by any means, um, but, but it is certain we know some of these people, and we know many others by reputation, by you know two degrees of separation, um, that many people who have been injured and who are able to obscure it in some way try to pass, and they are successful in passing. And yes, it's not the usual context in which you hear passing referred to, but there are a lot of people out there right now who are passing as being vaccinated and being just fine, but no more boosters, thank you very much. But actually, what went into that decision to not take any more boosters was the fact that they were injured by the previous iteration. Um, yes, he has got a self-reinforcing uh, pattern. Um, it does not match what one sees uh, from a different perspective. Lots of injured people. He then goes on to use... So Raincourt looks at many different countries and looks at the independent uh, data sets of deaths, which are very uh, um, studiously recorded in all nations or virtually all nations. And Pacman thinks he refutes it based on his thought experiment, which is deeply flawed. Um, he says 
he knows nobody who was vaccine injured, and he knows several people who died from COVID. Now, I would point out, chances that the people he knows that quote-unquote died of COVID were also vaccinated, and therefore you have to ask the question of what were the factors that contributed to their death is high. And uh, given how many people are asymptomatic when testing positive for COVID, and given how many people have been very, very sick while never testing positive for COVID, COVID is clearly a fellow traveler for some people. And many cases that have been attributed, many deaths that have been attributed to COVID were not of COVID, but with COVID. But with COVID, which is something Raincourt covers very carefully. Um, finally, going from Raincourt's study, which covers many different nations, Hackman claims to refute it on the basis of a pattern he says took place in Peru. Now, I watched Raincourt's presentation. Raincourt is very careful to point out those circumstances in which a pattern goes in the other direction. I suggest David Pakman have Dennis Raincourt on, and they can have this out. If, if David, if you think you've got this analysis beat, then you should definitely have Dennis Raincourt on and you can humiliate him and the world will know that this, uh, these excess deaths are not the result of the vaccine campaign and you will have done a lot of good in your, in your mind. I don't think that's what's going to happen. And finally, I would just say Pacman, at the very end of his little piece, says that he is, um, that five years ago, he would have thought I was too smart to fall for the idea that these um, vaccines are causing substantial excess deaths. And now he's caught between two possibilities. One possibility is that I'm lying, and the other is that I don't get it. And he has a little debate. He says, lying is worse, but these things are both horrifying. So he has me, that little debate with himself? Yeah. Let me clarify this for him. I'm not lying, David, and I don't think you know what you're talking about. So I suggest have Dennis Raincourt on. I'm not saying Dennis Raincourt's number is right, but I do think it's credible. I think the methodology is valid, and um, the nature of excess deaths is that one has to infer based on other evidence what would be causing them, which Raincourt is careful about. So if you, if you think you've got this one nailed, then show us. All right. All right. Um, I had one other thing, which I think we just have to pay the rent on. We showed a clip on uh, Wednesday mm -hmm. of a podcaster who took me to task falsely mm -hmm. for having claimed um, Jewish genetic superiority. Right. Um, we pointed out that I had never said that. I don't believe it. Mm -hmm. And um, to his credit, he checked into the matter mm -hmm. and apologized and corrected the record. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. Oh, but then, okay. well, no, no, this isn't on him. <laughs> okay. I don't know. I don't know what's going on. But yeah. you want to show the uh, um, the screenshot from Foster? So he corrected the record. I thanked him for it publicly. Next thing I see from him says, YouTube has now deleted all my videos from my channel without notice or reason. What? Take this as a sign that I'm doing the right thing. Now, let us talk about what predicament we are in. I don't know if this guy is for real. Yeah, yeah. This obviously could be a ploy, but it could also be next level chess by Goliath. Yeah. Right? This could be if you wanted to make it look like 
I was on Goliath's team, then removing this guy's videos in the aftermath of that exchange might make it look like that. Now, again, I don't know what's going on. I don't know, you know, it's a hall of mirrors. So take it for what it's worth. Um, but in my opinion, one should act with generosity towards dissidents. One should have forgiveness in their hearts if people level up. But there are a lot of people who are taking themselves off the dream team. Nobody's excluding them. They're taking themselves off the dream team by deciding that, you know, it's a an exclusive club and that they get to decide, you know, who is sufficiently hardcore to be on it. Right. My feeling is anybody who's trying to do the right thing has courage and insight is on the team and you don't get thrown off for honest errors. Yeah. And, uh, hardcore does not come with cynicism and certainty. Cynicism and certainty actually are, are going to occasionally yield the right answers, but, uh, in general are going to make for a less, uh, flexible, less powerful toolkit with which to understand the world. Yep. Should we, uh, should we move on? Yeah, yeah. let's move on. I'm going to talk about Boeing. Boing. Boeing and the FAA and DEI and other um, letters and apparently yeah. random, but not actually that random orders. <laughs> Very good. All right. Um, okay, so everyone will know, <clears throat> have heard about this Alaska air flight out of Portland uh, that um, some small number of minutes after takeoff, it was, I think, three miles up. Uh, a mid cabin door blew out just uh, just after takeoff. Uh, both seats next to the door were unoccupied. Uh, everyone in the plane survived, uh, and in the aftermath, the FAA has grounded several 737-9 Max is the is the specific um, planes across the industry until they can get full checkups. Uh, and uh, there is on. Um, Here's here's the first thing the FAA put out. You want to show my screen here, Zach? This is their emergency airworthiness directive dated January 6th. Uh, the background is um, just as I said, this emergency AD, this emergency airworthiness directive was prompted by a report of an in-flight departure of a mid-cabin door plug. In-flight departure. departure. Yes. <laughs> That's a very odd <laughs> turn of phrase. Which resulted in a rapid decompression of the airplane. The FAA is issuing this airworthiness directive to address the potential in-flight loss of a mid-cabin door plug, which could result in injury to passengers and crew, the door impacting the airplane and or loss of control of the airplane. There, That is all written about some uh, hypothetical future event, although it clearly did just happen, which is why this EAD is happening. Uh, and yes, the in-flight departure. Unauthorized departure yeah. of the door <laughs> from the flight. Did not take a hold of that. No, exactly. Didn't get a hall pass. Was uh, and and, and uh, yeah. So, okay. So that's what the um, that's what they're responding to. And so can I, can I say a few things about this event first? Maybe you're headed here. Um, let me just say a couple more things first. Yeah. Um, the EAD. It's, it's sort of a long technical document, but another thing it says is um, this emergency airworthiness directive, as issued by the FAA on January sixth, sixth. 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 Quote, requires operators to inspect affected aircraft before further flight. The required inspections will take around four to eight hours per aircraft, and the EAD will affect approximately 171 airplanes worldwide. 
Uh, so unfortunately, one of the downstream effects of this, of course, is that Alaska Air's stock is, is going down. And this has nothing to do with Alaska, right? This is Boeing. This is about Boeing having, create, having produced a bunch of aircraft. And this is not the first time that this particular model of aircraft has come under scrutiny for maintenance and safety issues. Uh, and, uh, you know, Alaska happens to have been the un, you know, unfortunate carrier where there was an incident, but it was about the plane being one of these Boeing 737-9 MAX planes, not the fact that it was Alaska. And I say that I cannot believe that I'm a fan of any airline, but Alaska is, um, you know, hubs out of Seattle. And uh, we've ended up flying a lot of airlines in the last few years, and Alaska is heads above above every other carrier and so i you know I, I just feel bad for them that they happened to have been the one um that was that that had the air um the door take an unexcused absence from the plane <laughs> um and so then on january 11th uh a couple days later um they oh wait, wait I, I want to talk about the i know incident itself I, but they say this incident should have never happened and it cannot happen again and uh, and I lost the rest of the statement. So um, go for it. Okay. There are some facts about this that people should understand. One, from the inside of the plane, it was not apparent that there was even a door there. Okay. This is a door. It's a door plug. It's, this is a door that is built in so that you can have a door there if you want. And on the Alaska versions of this plane, that door from the inside of the plane just looked like another window seat. Mm-hmm. Um which is why there were seats sitting right next to it. Right. Right, because we don't... Well, in, 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 no, there, there, there are lots of exit rows that have a seat right next to them. Um, that's true. The, the important thing about this is that because this happened right after takeoff, I think they were, you said... Three miles I, I up. Th- I think it was 10,000 some odd feet up. But anyway, whatever. Maybe I have that wrong. Nonetheless, it wasn't 30 plus thousand feet. And what that means is two things. One... Three miles, 4.8 kilometers. Okay. Seven minutes after takeoff. So, A, the pressure differential between the inside and the outside of the plane was much lower than it would ultimately have been, which has... The plane was at an altitude at which people can breathe without assistance. Right, absolutely, absolutely. so, but that also means that the violence of the unexcused absence of this door <laughs> um, was much reduced. Mm-hmm. Yet it still pulled seats out of the plane. I don't think that happened. I, you don't I, think I, that I, happened? No, I don't. I don't find any evidence that that happened. Oh, okay. Well, uh, uh, the, the the two seats nearest the door plug um, that departed without uh, without the due authority um, were empty. Uh, and there were there were no mortality. There was no mortality. I think even no injuries on the plane. But I, I don't think any seats got. Okay. Well, maybe I, maybe I misunderstood that part. But the point is, the violence of the decompression was much lower than it would have been, and also that means that the stress necessary to push this plug out of the wall of the plane was lower than it might have been too. So the right. degree to which this plane had been compromised and nobody had known about it was uh, much greater than you would imagine because it took oh. much less of a differential in pressure to blow the door out. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can understand, I mean, I, in my opinion, I don't know that the FAA isn't going to have some responsibility for having licensed this plane um, in a form where such things could happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
the FAA did the right thing grounding these planes, right? They need to all be inspected because to the extent that something that could blow this plug out at that low altitude uh, was capable of doing it, yes, that could be a fluke, something that happened to one plane, but, you know, there's a reason that air travel is as safe as it is, and that's because checks are thorough and things are built fail-safe and, you know, whatever cracks they're ultimately going to find or whatever it is, you know, cracks in something, bad rivets, I don't know, but yep. um, whatever it was should have been noticed many times before this was able to happen. There should have been, you know, and in fact, there was, I think, something about a pressure light having fired multiple times indicating that there was some breach that should have resulted in, um, in, in uh, an inspection. So uh, 171 planes are grounded until they uh, undergo four to eight hour um, safety checks worldwide. Um, but that is all what it is. But now there's a kerfuffle, a, a, a hubbub generated. Um, <clears throat> because James Lindsay unearthed some documents from Boeing uh, that suggest that Maybe we actually could have kind of seen this coming. And I'm going to start, however, with uh, the Elon Musk tweet uh, in which he quote tweets Jim, um, James, uh, because that, of course, is what got the attention then of the mainstream media who are trying to downplay this. So we're going to walk through first what Musk says about what Lindsay says and what the mainstream media says about Musk before going into some of the nitty gritty of what Lindsay has actually unearthed. So um, here is the tweet by Musk. Do you want to fly in an airplane where they prioritize DEI hiring over your safety? That is actually happening. <clears throat> and that is a quote tweet of the initial tweet in Lindsay's thread, which we're going to look at a little bit um, more later. But uh, the initial tweet of, of James's is, let's have a close look at Boeing and DEI. Boeing's corporate filings with the SEC reveal that in the beginning of 2022, the annual bonus plan to reward CEO and executives for increasing profit for shareholders and prioritizing safety was changed to reward them if they hit DEI targets. And specifically, here is it's a Boeing proxy statement, 2022 proxy statement, in which in 2021, executives uh, were their operational performance um, areas that they were being looked at, that were being looked at, were product safety, employee safety, and quality. And those did not disappear in 2022, but they were added to. So now you also have climate and diversity, equity, and inclusion. Okay, <clears throat> so we had three areas by which, um, by which executives at Boeing were being assessed in 2021 and in 2022. That has changed. We've got two more areas, climate and DEI. If I... If I may, Zach. Um, the mainstream media <clears throat> basically says in response to this, <clears throat> how could Musk be so crass and ridiculous? Right? How, you know, what, what actually is he, is he doing? Uh, so we have Ed Barron. There's a number of these, um, these articles, of course. Um, but we have here... At Barron's, Elon Musk says Boeing has a diversity problem. The evidence says otherwise. Uh, let's, let's see if I can find uh, a particularly remarkable paragraph. Here we go. Starting here. Musk's tweet is also misleading. Safety is still used to determine bonuses. Sadly, this is a quote now, as a key international figure and icon, Musk is being inflammable. 
<laughs> like that. And taking the DEI out of context, says Kristen Hull, founder of NIA Impact Capital. Quote again, if you look at the bonus incentive, the language is adding DEI as an additional focus criterion, not taking away focus on safety. It's not either or, said the woman who called Musk inflammable. <laughs> um, I, you know, apparently she has neither linguistic nor quantitative skills. Right. right. So like you had three things that they were being assessed on and now you have five. Unless these executives were working at 60% capacity and they just had a lot more room to do a lot more stuff. And therefore you can just add more stuff in and not take away from the stuff that they were doing. In which case, those are some pretty overpaid executives, I would think. And they needed to have some better executives there in the first place. If these executives were actually working at full capacity, which we generally expect executives of major corporations to do, you add two more things to a list that was only three long of things that they are going to be incentivized to be excellent at. And what's going to suffer? The other things that they were supposed to be focusing on, which again was product quality and employee quality, and I believe it was safety, obviously. So you have pointed to one obvious trade-off cost here, that to the extent that you have added an extra criteria and you expect a decrease in the success on the other criteria to drop unless uh, the thing was fatally underperforming to begin with. Precisely. But here's the other thing, is in this case, there's a very specific reason. It isn't just that you've added something else that would be nice to accomplish, mm -hmm. but that to, to accomplish a diversity, equity, and inclusion goal implies hiring different people well, than we'll, you. We'll, we'll get there. But my point is that's two distinct trade-off reasons that you should expect this problem to happen. Well, g given what this given what the standards are we don't yet know how it is that they're going to happen right like so i'm 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 trying to just be very clear like this this Kristen hull character who apparently has tried to give musk grief in the past and i don't know if he if she's a gnat in his world or he doesn't know who she is at all or if she's actually a, a player um but given that there's just you know five areas now we don't know how any of them are being are being implemented we don't actually know you know, product safety, employee safety, quality were the areas before. And now we've got climate, which I assume means like global climate. And we have no idea. You know, this is Boeing. How, what are they going to do? They've got a climate problem, right? Um, and then diversity, equity, inclusion. Now, probably, and we will see actually from James's further uh, research into this, I'll show you a couple of things, um, how they're going to do that is by hiring disproportionately based on um, demographic characteristics as opposed to based on merit, in which case obviously safety and product quality and probably or product safety and employee safety and quality are going to take a hit. Um, but given that we don't know, given that they don't specify, uh, we, we all we can say from this, from what we are what we are seeing right here is actually, if you had three standards that you were being assessed on, and now you've got five, unless you were underperforming rapid, like unless you were wildly underperforming before, those three initial standards will be done to a lower level now. Well, I, I disagree with you a little bit, because if you had discrimination in Boeing's hiring policy, then actually you could increase both diversity, equity, and inclusion and merit at the same time. But absent that, because if you had discrimination, I don't yeah, understand. You if you were discriminating against French people, mm -hmm. every so often a French person is going to be the most qualified person for the job, and some fraction of the time they should get the job, they won't, and so you won't have the best people in the job. 
-hmm. The best people in the job comes from a completely colorblind uh, and sex-blind application process in which merit is the only thing that causes you to get hired, mm -hmm. okay? So... And you may find afterwards, I don't know why you would at, at a company like Boeing, um, but you may find afterwards, oh, we've got an overrepresentative of French people. Right. Or it's the NBA. We've got an overrepresentative of tall people, and the tall people are often the darker-skinned people, and we weren't trying to do that. We swear, right. we're trying to win that's games. what happened. Right. Yeah, we're trying to win games, and it resulted in right. a non-random sample of the population. Okay, So my point is, look, if there was discrimination, that's bad for merit. If there was no discrimination, then DEI is bad for merit, because what it does is it forces you to add other considerations that then compete with merit, and that means you don't have the best people designing uh, door plugs for airplanes. So I think we can infer... I think we can infer. And in fact, you know, the evidence that James outlines allows us to do that. But I don't think we even need to go to the inference level because I think there's a more basic, there's a fundamental math math thinking error happening here. And it's apparently being made by someone who is, uh, what is she? The founder of NIA Impact Capital? Like, I don't know what that is. I didn't look into it, but that sounds like someone who has some skills and knows some things. And... Um, and the, the point that you are making, A, requires inference and is a little bit more abstract. Like, maybe I get why some people aren't going to get that. But the, actually, you had three things and now you have five. Yes, some among the original three are going to suffer, unless you were underperforming to such a degree that you could add these and not take anything from the first three. Well, I don't see any reason not to put them both on the table, especially in light of the fact that the intersection lists pretend that the world is... Um, postmodern. Therefore, what would merit even be in relation to? They pretend that these skills aren't real things, and so they discount the possibility that by prioritizing something other than merit that you're going to compromise all of these functional systems on which we depend, which would, of course, be a very forceful argument uh, against their nonsense. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, you know, as somebody who has studied and thought a lot about trade-offs, both of these things are clearly uh, clearly hazards. And, you know, again, the also, what was the phraseology for what they're prioritizing? Um, the, the climate and... Oh, the, the actual things that they're not yeah. prioritizing are... Oh, that's a different one. We had originally product safety, employee safety, and quality, and now we've got climate and it's DEI. It's diversity, equity, and inclusion. So then even the phraseology, diversity, equity, and inclusion is an uh, allusion to a very specific perspective. It's not anti-discrimination. It is specifically a, um, a affirmative correction that in this case is going to compete with uh, design. So they're, they're invoking DEI means we can infer that they are not talking about getting rid of discrimination. They are talking about working to be inclusive in an environment where merit is obviously relevant to safety. I think I'm pushing back against this because this requires inference. And I know you're right. I, I know that this is actually the effect. And in fact, again, as I'm about to show you, the, the other evidence that Jim has put together demonstrates that the stuff in the details is like proves that this is actually how DEI manifests. But 
at the most simple level, at a level that anyone should be able to understand. If you've got Barron's and a lot of other mainstream articles that I found just saying, Musk was clearly wrong. How dare he? He's a awful racist tycoon, right? You know, they're, they're just, they're, it's, it's all the same stuff over and over again. And you have someone who is trotted out as, as powerful, you know, founder of whatever it was, Nia Impact Capital, right? Who makes such an, a mind-bogglingly basic mistake of simple logical reasoning that that can be pointed out. Whereas what you were just talking about is, you know, maybe more important ultimately and definitely true, but harder to explain. And you, and people will get lost in those details and they will want to get lost in these details. And I guess part of what I'm trying to do is say, you know what, when you had three things that you needed to focus on and now you have five, those original three will suffer unless you were underperforming. It can be said that simply. Yeah, the other problem though, and I know you're headed here that you you did the work to to find it, but we have predicted this outcome, and because we predicted this outcome on the basis that diversity and equity and inclusion would come at the expense of merit, right? The second kind of uh, dangerous compromise. Well, why don't we just look at the actual evidence? So, right. so you're, what you're doing is requiring inference, and I don't think is necessary because there's actual evidence of this. Okay. Well, but. A prediction that manifests potentially. We'll get to the prediction too. Like, yes, we predicted that this would happen, um, but that the having three areas go to five, um, yes, will result in what you're talking about. But that requires analysis and care, and um, and this does not. So this um, is another of the documents that James Lindsay unearthed: a letter from leadership. Progress isn't a moment in time, and it's not a set of, set of metrics. Progress is commitment and action from all, all of us every day. This is from 2023 Boeing Global Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Report. One, two, three, four, five, fifth um, paragraph in which the, the stuff in red are, have been blocked, bracketed out by James, but I'm going to read this whole paragraph. Also in 2022, for the first time in our company's history, we tied incentive compensation to inclusion. There it is, okay? Our goal was to achieve diverse interview slates for at least 90% of manager and executive openings. I don't know what a diverse interview slate is, okay. We exceeded that target with 92% of interview slates being diverse, resulting in 47% diverse hires at the management and executive levels. At the point you're over 50% isn't the opposite diversity, but okay. Um, for 2023, we've raised the bar and expect at least 92.5% of those interview slates will be diverse. <laughs> people are so insane ESG is driving <laughs> um, but I mean like, ser among everything else wrong with this they made 92% and they're going to raise the bar and go to 92.5% <laughs> like what a climb What what? Like the goal is not laudable it's anti-laudable and they're like we're going to keep on going but just this tiny little bit well, but wait, 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 uh, wait, wait, wait. we do not, just one last sentence here we do this not to hit a certain number like, yes you do uh, we do this not to hit a certain number, but because meritocracy demands the opportunity to compete. Wow. So, like, they just, like, they're just claiming the opposite of what they're doing. They're claiming that this is in service of meritocracy when it cannot be, and that's back to your point. Yep. Now, I would also point out that the achievement, in yep. quotes, of 
whatever their 92% diverse interview slates. That was their target. I uh, know their target was 90. 90. And their new target will be 92.5. Okay. So, but my point is going to be what, what people are not going to spot is that this is clearly a diminishing returns realm mm-hmm. where the point is those fractional advantages that come very late are going to come at spectacular cost, right? As you try to increase the diversity of your slates, you know, you've worked hard, you've gotten everybody you could possibly apply, and you're going to work that much harder. That means that the compromises are actually expected to be large for these little gains. That's what diminishing returns is. That's right. Little gains at huge cost. So again, to to that point, and also to, to the point that putting DEI as something by which your executives will be compensated will inherently cause a decrease in in quality and in and in those other things that presumably are what helped make you a global corporation in the first place the final paragraph again from the 2023 Boeing Global Equity Diversity and Inclusion Report progress is every teammate acting on our seek speak and listen habits Progress is every teammate feeling physically and psychologically safe and ensuring that safety for each other and ensuring that safety for each other. Progress is reflecting the diversity of the world's talent within our workforce. Progress is being the destination for great people to build amazing careers in aerospace. Not the best people, but great people. Progress is equity. Progress is diversity. Progress is inclusion for all and by all. What are they going to hire all 8 billion of us? Like, what even is the claim here? And you know, right there, like, okay, this is the equity, diversity, inclusion report, but their measures of progress don't say anything about quality or safety. Nothing at all, except um, feel, feeling physically and psychologically safe. They are prioritizing the feelings of their new great workforce, but not the actual safety of that workforce or its customers, or the quality of the products that they are making. It is, unfortunately, even worse than that. Because what this is, is the transportation of the rules that are being instituted inside the student level of participation in colleges into a corporate environment where your and my safety is being determined. Mm -hmm. And when they say everybody needs to feel safe, What they mean is um, certain people will not have the right to critique other people, right? And here's my problem. Let's say you have some annoying, impolite white guy who uh, has a bee in his bonnet about a broken calculation or a manufacturing process. He's a little spectrum-y and he kind of uh, makes one of the women uncomfortable because he asked her out once and it was awkward. Or worse, he's going to say something that makes the person who's making the error look dumb, right? He's not sensitive, so she's not going to feel safe or he's not going to feel safe. And the point is you need to have, especially in a safety context, you need to have something where somebody who's got an actual observation to make about errors that are being made or opportunities that are being missed or processes or whatever it is, those people have to be emboldened and protected in saying that you can't do this. If you do this in a DEI context, then what you're doing is you're setting a 
uh, intersectional priority over who gets to say what, who is al- allowed to level a critique. So even to the extent that you've DEI'd the hiring process and you've brought in people who are unlikely to be as meritorious in order to achieve these high DEI numbers, then you've made things worse by creating a hierarchy of who can critique whom because that wasn't so, I mean, it's dangerous, but it's not dangerous to physical safety in a college seminar, but you put it in this context and it's freaking lethal. Yeah. And it, no, this is exactly right. And yeah, the fact is that college seminars don't matter. The stakes are zero, right? That's, th- that is both for the better and worse, right? Like you're supposed to be able to explore everything in a classroom where actually the real world, real world consequences don't exist. If, however, you convince yourself, if you create a system in which you convince yourself and you convince everyone in these seminars that this is the highest stakes possible and that if they feel a little bit uncomfortable or they feel like they're about to cry or they feel anxious or something, then that really, really, really matters and that this needs to be paid attention to right away. They go out into the real world where there's actual gravity and shit, like there's actually forces that matter and people fly places and drive places and take bridges and are in buildings that were built that were designed and built by people who had their feelings hurt in a college class once and they think that's what matters, of course the bridges are going to start falling down and the buildings and the planes are going to start falling out of the sky and the door plugs are going to be invited to leave. (laughs) So this goes to another um, piece of toolkit that we have deployed. The, um, needs a better name, but the theory of close calls. Yeah. Right? The idea is... You can infer something about dangers that you can't afford to face even once by the close calls that suggest you're doing something wrong that keeps putting you in danger, mm-hmm. right? A door plug flying out of a, an airplane in flight is a close call that is now calling our attention to the process that allowed that to happen. Yeah. And the fact is airplanes are essentially the safest thing going And there's basically an institutional memory about how to create them. And because they stay in service for a very long time, and because presumably, uh, you know, mechanics and engineers and safety inspectors have long careers, the DEI madness has not yet created a wave of uh, airplane crashes. However, it will. This is the this is the first close call we spot maybe in which this kind of stupid logic is resulting in uh, a compromise in the structure of actual physical planes. And frankly, you know, hundred and some odd planes have now been taken out of service, which creates more stresses on the system. It's going to mean airlines are reluctant to take other planes out of service that might need something. They're going to be pressured Mm -hmm. to keep them in service because they don't have enough seats flying from here to there. So the cascading effects for this are serious. We're still early in the process of DEI eroding the thing that made air travel safe. We've still got a lot of stuff that works out there and stuff that works tends to work for a long time. And so, I mean, this is, it's, it's the same thing that is true, actually, about, you know, back 10, 10, 20 years ago, as people started to talk about, well, we need, you know, we, we need greater representation in academia of like what the American populace looks like. I don't know that we need that, but say that it is a goal, say that that is a value that we hold and that we, that we need. It's going to take a while. 
uh, because it's quite one thing to say the student, we, we would like the student body to look like uh, the population of the U.S. That should be able to happen relatively quickly. But you want higher admin at colleges and universities to be representative at the same, like, like the student body is? You realize that 40 years ago, there weren't many people of color doing the work that would have given them the experience and the accolades so that they could be in a position of, of such higher power now. And therefore, it's going to take a while. This is, this is the like flip side of that. Our things that are engineered and built are not going to start falling apart right away as soon as you implement DEI practices, because most things continue to work, because the designs that were working, that were designed by people who were hired for their merit and not for their sexual orientation, uh, continue to work. But time is ticking. Like with every passing day, those, those systems that have been working are closer to not working because things fail, they age, they, get, they, they become obsolescent, and new designs are coming down the pike. And any of these new designs that have some DEI hire on the team who was actually hired because of their skin color and not because of their merit has a greater chance of, you know, and was sitting in these college seminars where if they started to feel uncomfortable, they got to stop the conversation and talk about their discomfort means that those designs and therefore those builds are much more likely to be flawed and perhaps fatally so. And in fact, when we have predicted this, we've always said this, that yep. there's going to be a delay between the compromising of merit and the collapsing of these structures. And, you know, just think about it, you know, if you decided that um, furries had been underrepresented in uh, bridge design and you started hiring, <laughs> you know, only... You know, I think they have been, actually. I'm almost certain of it, but... Yeah. And, and, I, and I'm glad for it, I'll say it. That the time has yeah. come and we're going to hire only furries in the design and inspection of bridges, you're not going to see bridges collapsing suddenly, right? You're right. going, it's... See, it was safe, guys. I mean, it's the, sa it's the same misunderstanding of safety, yep. actually, um, as, as what happened with the rollout of the vaccines. Um, so I did, I don't think it was the first time, but I did find one of the previous times that we have, we, we have specifically made the prediction that... You bring DEI into a corporation as one of its important principles, and you will begin to see things fail. Um, we talked about it um, about a year ago, actually, in January 28th of 2023 on episode 159, Monkey Business at Pfizer. When we discussed that, remember that Project Veritas video uh, in which the founder, whose name I've forgotten, who was then drummed out for crazy reasons. Oh, um, uh, O'Keefe. Uh, yeah. Um, uh pretends to be on a, on a date with a Pfizer employee uh, and the Pfizer employee just dishes dirt. Um, and then at the point that it's revealed that he, that he's not talking to um, a possible date, he's actually talking to someone from Project Veritas. First he responds, well, I was lying about all of it. And then, um, and then he plays the race card. He's like, Oh, I'm a black man. I'm being harmed here. And I don't, you know, I don't remember exactly what he does, but it's, it's ridiculous. And uh, a year ago, episode 159, we specifically talked about that and predicted that. Once again, that moving DEI initiatives into uh, places of influence in corporations are going to cause those corporations to end up doing damage as they begin to fail. Here we go, Boeing. Yep. And, you know, we've seen it in government, too. You know, mm -hmm. Rachel Levine is uh, not the person you want managing uh, public health. 
Um, no, he is not. Sam Brinton, was it, was uh, not the guy you wanted managing, managing nuclear waste. Um, but he stole some fabulous dresses. <laughs> I would imagine he did. But anyway, yeah, enough of this, right? Enough Let, of this, Let's yeah. put it this way. You've got, you got essential systems compromising them on a transparently insane compromising of merit uh, is not something a rational civilization would do. Uh, we have not been a rational civilization. We've started doing that. It's time we stopped. Yeah, we need to stop. We need to stop. I mean, this this is how many wake-up calls do we need before enough people wake up? I don't know. Um, but I, I wonder, actually, um, all those people on that plane out of Portland. There's a plane out of Portland. But there are a lot of people who don't want to think, on you know, on that plane. I should finish that sentence. But, like, there are a lot of people on that plane who don't want to think that um, DEI initiative, initiatives could have any negative consequences at all. Yeah, you know, this is out of the city that we called home, and we know just how ingrained DEI-style thinking is there. Maybe, maybe the mainstream media, you know, pushback against James Lindsay's relatively straightforward research into what Boeing just puts into its documents and Elon Musk's retweeting it. And, but the mainstream media is already, already, already going like, no, it had nothing to do with it. They couldn't possibly have had anything to do with it. So maybe no one on that plane even runs into the possibility, but I would hope that something could be learned from being on a plane where a door plug blows out and, you know, some number of phones get whipped out of the plane and, you know, it's, got to have been hopefully the most terrifying several moments of all of those people's lives right and they got lucky and they got so lucky um will some of them begin to wonder how could this be allowed to happen and will then they begin to talk to some of their friends and their family and and it, it begins to spread how is it that we are beginning to see failures where for a very very long time we didn't see failures I think for the moment, at least, we should rename it diversity, equity, and explosive decompression. <laughs> right? Um, I think so. Yeah. Yep. Yes. The un unexpected departure of the door plug uh, <laughs> left an opening in a plane. Yes. Yeah. Um, all right. All right. There? I think we are. I think we yeah. are. All right. Um, all right. So if you've been if you've been at the watch party at locals, very cool. If you have not considered joining us there, we um, we're doing our Q and A's there now. We won't be doing that today, but uh, we do our Q and A's there, uh, including our what we've been doing our monthly private Q and A um, every on the last Sunday of every month, plus uh, after a live stream on the second second live stream of every month. And we also have AMAs there. We have our Discord server. Uh, lots of great stuff over at locals and. Um, we are, uh, we encourage you, please, to not just subscribe, join us, become a member at Locals, but also subscribe to our Rumble channel. It actually truly helps us. Uh, we're trying to grow our numbers there, and it, it is growing. Whereas uh, at the moment that we got demonetized on YouTube in the summer of 2021 and have never since been remonetized, the numbers also stopped growing, even though we have many other indications that suggest that our audience is growing. But the numbers are being juked. At, at YouTube, and so please come over to Brumble um, and and subscribe there. It doesn't that doesn't cost you anything, um, but it does it does actually help us tremendously. Um, check out uh, my weekly writings at Natural Selections. That's naturalselections.substack.com. Um, <clears throat> go to the store, darkhorsestore.org, where you get lots of cool stuff, including our newest "Cut That Shit Out" shirt. 
It's a good shirt. It's a good shirt. Um, our younger son has been wearing it around and uh, garnering supportive comments. I am imagining, I don't know, but I am imagining as he walks through the world that people are cutting that shit out around him because... The is that all it takes? Like a knife through butter. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, what else? There's there's various... Oh, um, check out our wonderful new uh, sponsors this week. Again, we had three new ones this week. It was Momentous, Maui Nui Venison, and Freespoke. We got links to those uh, those sponsors and, of course, everything else we talked about in the show notes. And just a reminder that we are supported by you, our audience. We are grateful to you, and we are are helped and gratified when you subscribe to our Rumble channel, when you share uh, things that you see uh, that we are doing that you appreciate, when you join us on Locals, when you subscribe um, to either full episodes or clips uh, on Rumble, if you must, on YouTube. Um, And anything else to say before we sign off? I don't think so. All right, so we'll be back in in a week and a half. Uh, not this Wednesday, but the following Wednesday. Until we see you next time, be good to the ones you love, eat good food, and get outside. Be well, everyone.